Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Hi there. Welcome back. Another episode. What is it today, Hannah? Today we're talking about satire. Hey. I think satire's come up before. Has it? I think, you know, we, we make references to funny stuff sometimes. Yeah. Not that often. No. But we, so what's, what has inspired today's episode? It started on Facebook. Most of our episodes start on Facebook. Yeah. We send each other messages. Um, And you suggested that 90s satire is making a comeback. Um, I think goodness gracious me hit your Facebook timeline. It had been, there'd been a couple of clips of goodness gracious me. And obviously I didn't grow up in Britain and. Poor you. It's true. I, uh, yeah, I didn't grow up in Britain and I also didn't grow up with a family that would acquire by various means British TV. So obviously uh, Americans could access certain shows. You know, you always, growing up, there were always the kids whose parents loved Doctor Who. So they got to watch Doctor Who and I didn't get to watch any TV at all. So, you know, tough luck for me. When I moved here, I started to become acquainted with a particular, I think, f- form of knowledge production that is British satire, which is its own its own type of satire. And then I met you, and you kept making references to this like thing that you kept calling goodness gracious Did me. Did you really not know goodness gracious me before you met me? I don't think so. Wow, that's I nice will. So I reckon. So when I watch it and when we have watched it to illustrate a point or something i recognize some of it but i wouldn't have made the connections so we probably should explain what goodness gracious me is yeah uh goodness gracious me is a sketch show a comedy sketch show uh that appeared on both tv and radio and it has I don't know to what extent contemporaneously or retrospectively, but it has acquired the um, the role, if you like, of the of the show that marks the entry of British Asian cultural production mm-hmm. into mainstream British cultural production. Yep. So goodness gracious me, satirizes essentially satirizes race relations in Britain. Uh, through the nineties uh, and and uh, and beyond, uh, and like a lot of sketch comedy, there are certain sketches that have entered into a kind of everyday conversation, folklore, cultural references type thing. Yeah, uh, going for an English being the obvious one, which <laughs> which satirizes uh, a, a particular British uh, preoccupation with going out, getting drunk, and then going for an Indian uh, <laughs> and satirizes the often terrible behavior that, that that white British people indulge in in Indian restaurants. And it, it's flipped on its head and it's set in Bombay and uh, a group of Indian yuppies going out, getting drunk, and then going for the English, going for an English and ordering the blandest thing on the menu. Um, and... While that is not necessarily my favorite sketch, I think there are other sketches that are that are much sharper. Uh, it has that talismanic force that that particular sketch has had that talismanic force. Um, 
there there are a number of sketches that work on similar principles. So uh, one particularly memorable one has a, a group of Indian kids who are traveling on the British Railway Network mm-hmm. and recording their experiences as they're on a gap year and talking yeah. about how underdeveloped Indian railways, uh, how underdeveloped the British railways are mm-hmm. and how uh, the people are poor, but, you know, making making the best of the situation <laughs> they have. Um, and it is brilliant. Yeah. It, it is brilliant. Many of the sketches really stand the test of time. Um, I've written academically about goodness gracious me mm-hmm. um in particular there is a there is a sketch about the indian mother who refuses to pay for anything because whatever you might want to pay for she can make at home uh whatever the subject of discussion is she will say you know why why do you want to pay for that i can make it at home and then she lists uh there's a fairly random list of ingredients that she needs to make it but the list always ends with and a very small aubergine mm-hmm. Um, so many people who are diasporic South Asians, but not just them, recognize these figures. You know, mm-hmm. recognize the figure of the the father who who insists that everything is Indian. That you know, Superman was Indian because he he has two jobs: he wears sheep glasses and he flies sheep. Um, or <laughs> Prince Charles is Indian because he's in the family business. You know, I mean, th- th- these are these are figures satirical yeah exaggerations of figures who are very very familiar yeah and goodness gracious me manages to skewer both white racist british hypocrisy and british indian hypocrisy mm-hmm. um in a, in a manner that is sharp and pointed and sometimes angry but never vindictive yeah uh yeah yeah the the clip that ended up on my news feed and it's clearly there's an algorithm at work here that is a brexit influenced algorithm is the deli mail sketch where they are in a a newspaper editing room deciding on stories that they're going to publish in a newspaper called the Delhi Mail, and they've they've decided that you know the way to sell newspapers is to have a really inflammatory story. So to take a contemporary issue that people really care about and then make them very angry with it. And one of the women suggests um, uh, all the foreigners flooding the country. And so they concoct a story about all the white foreigners coming from Europe to flood India. <laughs> and they publish it in the Delhi Mail. <laughs> and it's a, it, it is, there's a Brexit element to this because the Daily Mail is, is seen by a lot of us as being closely tied to disseminating disinformation about uh, the European Union, and about the relationship between Britain and the European Union and what could happen after Britain declares its independence. And the Daily Mail is very famous very recently for um, positing that unchecked rampant immigration from parts of Eastern Europe have destroyed Britain. And 
that's new. Like that's that's in the last kind of five or six years. But this this sketch is you know twenty five years old, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean to be fair, Daily Mail. You know, historically, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it famously ran a headline, Hurrah for the Black Shirts. Um, so there, there's always been a, a xenophobic, racist um, agenda to them. Yeah. Think, yeah. Yes. What's interesting is that that agenda is 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 ongoing. Yes. I think that's the, it's the, the longevity of the, the agenda, the discourse, and the predictability of it. And the the time that has passed since the first airing of the Daily Mail sketch and now makes the viewing of it now more impactful. Yeah, so, I mean, we were talking about this before we turned the machine on. It, it seems to me that two of the most important criteria for good satire is, you were, you were quoting from a Chris Morris interview, right? Chris Morris mm-hmm. spoke about... Um, finding something that everybody agrees with mm-hmm. and then puncturing that. Mm-hmm. And I think that is true, but I think that's part of the story because it's also finding something that everybody thinks is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is in that importance that temporality lies and how satire can date quite quite quickly. Uh, if you watch old episodes of have I got news for you in Britain or SNL Saturday Night Live in America? Sometimes the older episodes lose their force, right? Like if you go back and watch SNL recreations of presidential debates from four, eight, twelve years ago, mm-hmm. uh, quite how SNL decided to depict Barack Obama or Mitt Romney might be funny today, but doesn't have an edge anymore. No, if they once did. Um, the reason why Chris Morris is back now on our newsfeed is he's launched uh, a new film, and neither of us have seen the film yet. But it would be interesting to to see how the film works out because he is essentially covering similar ground to what he's covered before. Mm-hmm. So Chris Morris's new film is called "The Day Shall Come." Uh, and watching the trailers of it, it is reminiscent of Four Lions, which was his previous film about Islamic fundamentalism, Islamic terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, skewering both the hypocrisy of terrorists and the anti-terror movement, the yeah. war, war on terror. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if if what he does differently, what what the day shall come does differently that that four lines didn't do. Um, the war on terror as a concept is just as um, relevant today, just mm-hmm. as uh, contemporary today as it was when four lines came out nearly a decade ago in twenty ten. Which I have to say, I was less keen on than a lot of people I know. Yeah. Um, many, many people I know really loved it. Yeah. And I was a little bit underwhelmed by it. I don't know what you felt. I I didn't love it. Yeah. Um, uh, I was uncomfortable with parts of it because I think it, it missed the mark yeah. in its satirizing of uh, religious fundamentalism. And... In the, in a way that isn't isn't unique to Chris Morris, um, I I think that it 
relatively it's a successful film. Like if you compare it to um, uh, other quite well-known and popular, certainly in 2010 satirists and commentators, specifically I'm thinking of Bill Maher, who Bill Maher in the United States has made a career of first satirizing and then just essentially moving into ranting about Christian fundamentalism in the United States that I've always felt misses something. Yeah, I mean, he has a special place for Islamic fundamentalism as well. He, he, yeah, so yes. Bill Maher, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Maher, the, the, and that's, that's, that's racism and Islamophobia. Yeah. So, the, which is why I'm leaving that because that's not satire, that's Islamophobia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is its own thing. Um, which is, you know, I don't think we need to discuss it because we agree on it and yeah. it's not interesting. Yeah. What I do find interesting, Bill Maher was, was originally originally quite famous for, he's pretty old now, uh, satirizing Christian religious fundamentalism. He's famously an atheist and he put out a documentary kind of around the same time, I want to say maybe 2009, 2010, where he, when he interviewed, he interviewed people and wandered around and um, he went to the Creationism Museum that shows people riding on dinosaurs and stuff. And uh, it's, I, I get what he's trying to do, but ultimately the final product is still bigoted. And for lions as well, there are moments where I could see I could see the attempt, but could not break out of a white liberal perspective exactly. on Muslims and uh, brown men in Britain. Exactly. The, the, that was the, the you've encapsulated precisely my my problem with four lions, which is first that the idea that. Muslim men who decide to become terrorists are nothing more than misguided fools mm -hmm. who are laughable and are pawns in the hands of evil, mm -hmm. superior religious, superior people in, in the religious hierarchy is such a cliche and such an easy argument to make that it left me a bit underwhelmed. And the second problem is that nowhere in the film is there any recognition of the racial identity of the filmmaker. Exactly. Yep. And that seems to me sort of unforgivable, really. Like Problematic, you, you, yeah. You, you, really, you really have to recognize your own subjectivity as a white person if you are going to satirize brown people. Yeah. And it, it the film, in, in certain ways, in certain points, I think tries to actively uh, hide or obscure the background of the filmmaker and the perspective of the filmmaker. I think Four Lions at various points tries to sell itself as something that is, uh, you know, rooted in authenticity to the experience of brown men. It's which really interesting if you compare, if you compare uh, Four Lions to the music of someone like Riz Ahmed, mm. who is in Four Lions, yep. and part of his career, uh, Four Lions was part of the 
one of the big breaks that brought Riz Ahmed to wider attention. Yep. Uh, Riz Ahmed's song, 9-11 Blues, uh, we will link link to it in the comments, is so sharp. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sharpness has to be connected to the lived experience of being Muslim in a post-9-11 world. And Chris Morris's Four Lines just doesn't go anywhere near that kind of sharpness. Yeah. It might, there there might be and are moments of sharpness when it is satirizing British um, racism. Yeah. Perhaps. But the sustained level of satire that Chris Morris achieves with something like Versailles or The Day Today. Uh, or I'm, Nathan Barley. Yeah. I'm not sure he achieves in in four lines yeah well and it's and and there's something really different about brass eye or the day today which are two those are two programs that satirize uh evening news um and the sensationalism and obsession like the elevating of kind of small parochial problems that are blown way out of proportion and the elevating of those to being global crises and do you want to talk about the two our two favorite Versailles sketches? Okay, so uh, the the famous one because it was my first introduction to Brass Eye because it, Brass Eye is a show turn of the century show, and so I wasn't in Britain at the time, um, and also I was too young to be allowed to watch it because it's inappropriate for kids. And but the, my first introduction was through there's a there's a if you if you've never lived in Britain, the, it. It doesn't it, it doesn't have quite as much weight, but British there's a, a lot of British hand wringing about this concept of the pedo, which is a pedophile, um, pedophile, a pedophile as British people say. I find that really weird. I, we would say pedophile. I, can, just off topic, but just because it it's it, important. It's important. I was watching John Oliver's um, last week tonight today. Speaking of satire. Speaking of satire. And he he's used the word pedophile, pedophile, and he called it pedophile, and it f- sounded so weird because he's British. He has a British accent. Yeah. He says everything else in a British accent, and the fra- the word pedophile said in a British accent sounded really strange. Well, Americans, like I know, I when a British person says pedophile, I know what they mean. When the, and it took me a long time to figure out what pedo, the sh- the shortened version means, um, because it the context of it always was just like what's going on. There's a there's a special place in kind of the the British imagination for this figure of the so called pedo. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's it's there's an entire episode of Peep Show that's based around it, for example. So it's a thing, and it came out of a a a kind of hand-wringing and uh, local sensationalizing of pedophiles living under the radar in neighborhoods where there are children. And all British kids were suddenly, like, at risk. And th- the the discourse was on a scale that is unimaginable. Like, it's just... It's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. And Brass I picked up on this amongst many other things, but the trend in news, especially to sensationalize stories like this. And the way that they did it, if you can imagine 
satirizing pedophilia is the news story is reporting on um <laughs> on sightings of a pedophile dressed as a school <laughs> and then they show an image in the icon box of a person dressed up as a school in order to attract kids like genuinely i mean it's Fullerns has nothing that sharp. No. no, nothing that risky. Yeah, right. It's it's not just about being sharp. It's about the risks you take as a satirist. Yeah, you know if 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 Chris Morris is right when he says he wants to find ideas that everybody agree with and then skewer them. Well, the idea that terrorism is a bit pathetic and killing people in the name of a god is ridiculous is an idea that everybody agrees with. Yeah. So it it that that is precisely why for me it just doesn't have that force in the way <laughs> a pedophile dressed as a school trying to attract kids just does. Yeah. And it's the ridiculousness of it that pokes fun at both the hypocrisy and the moral self-righteousness mm-hmm. of all of us. That means that even though it is much much older. Yeah. It still still has a bite, uh, in the way that you know. Uh, there's another another sketch from from Versailles where they're talking about AIDS, and um, there's it's it's staged as a um, not quite reality TV show, but um, a, a TV show in front of a live audience. Mm, yeah. Um, sort of, you know, Jerry Springer, Jeremy Kyle type. Yes. Type show, uh, where. The host, played by Chris Morris, is categorizing and then lambasting people based on if they have if they got have good AIDS or bad AIDS. Yes. you know if they got it from a needle because they needed blood blood transfusion, that's good AIDS. But if they had gay sex, then that's bad AIDS. Yeah, um, and that is still still biting today. Yeah, uh, because it the phrase used hand wringing it 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 precisely diagnoses and then punctures this this uh, self. Uh, self-obsessed navel-gazing hand-wringing that, that all of us and the media engage in. Yep. Um, and I guess part of what we wanted to think about in the context of the return of Chris Morris and the return of uh, of a Spitting Image, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second, is what makes satire contemporary. Yeah. Um, so Spitting Image is coming back. Uh, for those of you who don't know, another... Uh, landmark name in in british satire um political satire through the medium of puppetry um it ran for much of the 80s and early 90s uh so in terms of political figures around the world it had thatcher it had reagan it had john major mm-hmm. it had gorbachev uh and like the best satire nothing was sacred right everything was up for grabs everything was uh was equ- considered equally vulnerable to attack yep um and then audience audience numbers fell for the long longest time there was there was no talk of spitting image ever coming back and recently they've just announced they're coming back in the world of trump and putin uh they've released some images of of the puppets uh, that they'll they'll use, and it made me think about how puppetry as a form 
allows a kind of entry into satire, which in some senses Trump doesn't really otherwise allow. Yeah. You know, how do you satirize Trump other than reading his tweets? Yeah. You know, I mean that that how can you in how can you invent something that is more ridiculous than what the man comes out on Twitter? Yeah, the closest things are uh I mean Alec Baldwin's impersonation, but it works because Alec Baldwin is quite like Trump. And uh Andy Circus reading Trump's tweets in Gollum's voice. Like that is the the ex- like you have to go to such extreme lengths in order to make Trump f- you know funny from a, in a satirical way and which is why I'm quite excited about spitting image coming back because mm. I think and you will be able to tell me much more about this than I do <laughs> uh, but I think puppetry allows allows a kind of monstrosity to be made manifest on screen mm. that a human actor just couldn't. Yeah, I think the I mean the the clear cultural reference we have that I think most people will know is is uh Team America um in which the violence and brutality of and sex. And uh, so yeah, so that's one thing but the a lot of it is about the violence of the Bush administration and the Bush administrations engaging in particular forms of warfare and also kind of violent rhetoric towards um, other world leaders who are also dictators. Um, uh, Kim Jong-il at the time. Uh, And of course there's lots of, lots of sex as well in team America. Um, Why are you, why are you calling me out here? What makes me an expert on puppets? Do you have a, Puppeteer. I'm a puppeteer. I'm well for a brief period. I I spent some time with a puppet <laughs> called Jolene. Called Jolene. Um. So I was recently in a play uh, earlier in the year. Um. It's an American play. It was written in I think 2013, 2014. Um. And it was on Broadway for a while, and it was on the West End in London, but not for very long. It did not do well here in Britain. Um, it did do well in the United States. It was popular in the U.S. And it is, in in many respects, the play uses satire. Um, and it is about a small church, a small church community in a suburb in Texas. And it's about a an after-school puppet ministry that takes place in the basement of this church, and it's run by this woman who's recently lost her husband, and her teenage son is a a member of the puppet club. And there are two other kids in the puppet club, and they make puppets, and then they tell Bible stories with their puppets, and they uh, everything is fine until the her son uh, realizes that his his puppet is starting to say things that he doesn't, he doesn't mean and his puppet is is starting to take on a life of his own and the puppet becomes a character in and of in and of himself and he starts to say really inappropriate really violent really vulgar things and the puppet's name is tyrone then the, the boy's name is jason and they have this kind of relationship and then my the reason that i had a puppet was because uh jolene the puppet character seduces Tyrone 
Jason's puppet um, on stage. And it's, I would say it was, it was graphic. It was probably an NC-17 rating. I don't know what that is, but I'd agree it was graphic. An 18 rating. Yeah. An 18 rating. 18 rating, yes. Um, um, play was called? The play is called Hand to God. Um, and it's... Very good. It's a good play. It's very American. But it is... It, it satirizes to a certain extent elements of uh, evangelical Christian culture. It doesn't satirize Christianity in any way. And it doesn't satirize religion at all. It does satirize small town American culture, and and cultures in certain types of churches. Um, one one cultural text that our audience might be familiar with that it, it definitely speaks to is Avenue Q. Yes, it, um, puppets being used for an adult text, de- engaging in adult themes. That yes. Definitely not for children. Yes, uh, the I mean the the language is graphic, um, but I think I should add actually that this play is is it, it is an adult play and it also includes on stage depictions of sex between human characters who are not puppets. But that certainly in the production that you were in, and that's the only production I saw. Human sex and puppet sex, puppet sex were used differently. Yes, and the the way the difference in the way in which they they were depicted depicted, from my perspective, seemed to be down to the fact that you could get puppets to do things that you couldn't get people to do, or yeah. not easily. Yeah, and you wouldn't want to because yeah. it would be exploitative yeah. to to have people yeah. do it, and that's the the real difference. And I think that's where the Trump puppet comes in, right? That that yeah. the Trump puppet can be monstrous sort of half human half non-human monstrous in the way that no amount of prosthetics or makeup or anything could render an actual human yeah um and you when the 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 thing that you are lampooning if your if your method of satirizing is is exaggeration which is one of the commonest ways of satirizing when the original that you're satirizing is that extreme, yeah, monstrous, um, then puppetry is about one of the only ways in which you could turn the dial up even further. Yes. Yeah, and I think the the intention in Hand to God is that the puppet the puppetry is shocking. Um, and the puppetry is shocking in order to make the humanity of the human characters more apparent. Um, and without the puppets, they're f- just flawed people. With the puppets, they're hilarious, sad, grieving, outcast, misfit people. And the extremes of the puppets creates a, a humanity in the rest of the characters. And it, it, the, of a really kind of off, like opposite example is Sesame Street. So I was reading today, Sesame Street has introduced um, a, a, a Muppet who has a parent who is struggling with addiction and who's in recovery. 
and this is in response to a growing number of very small children in the United States who are experiencing uh, families where there's a family member, often a parent, who is struggling with and experiencing addiction or is in recovery. And this has to do with the opioid epidemic in the United States. And Sesame Street has always uh, um, been aimed at preschoolers, very small children um, who are often forgotten about or kind of missed out in um, either policymaking or NGO intervention. And the programming that they've done is online. It's online tools and resources. It's not on the show itself. Um, but this this puppet interacts with uh, an actual young human girl uh, whose parents are also in recovery. And they've filmed a number of kind of scenes and providing toolkits and things like uh, how to have conversations, um, how to express your feelings, what ways you can kind of express yourself using art or um, conversations that you can have with people as a kind of way for families to talk about the opioid crisis. And it's an extremely adult topic uh, using a puppet to uh, basically to communicate effectively with kids. Sesame Street is well known for having done this for almost 50 years. So as you were talking, what I was thinking of was um, the relationship between the little girl played by a human actor mm -hmm. who's the child of a parent with addiction issues and a puppet who's a child of a parent with addiction issues. The relationship between those two, the relationship between a human actor who satirizes Trump versus a puppet that satirizes Trump. The, the dynamic between these two pairs reminds me a little bit of a previous episode we did on the consequences of live-action remakes of Disney films. Mm -hmm. A film like Beauty and the Beast, when it is animation, it's easier to suspend the horror at the awfulness of the gender politics. Yeah. In the way that when it is a human, it is much more immediate. And I think something similar is happening in reverse, which is uh, the, the clear artificiality of a puppet allows you to do things and go places that a human actor just won't let you do. Yeah. In 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 I I don't mean a human actor won't let you do won't let the director do. I just mean you the use of a human actor would make it quote unquote too real. Yeah. Um I guess one of the things I'm interested in is thinking about the relationship between temporality and effectiveness with sat in terms of satire, mm -hmm. right? So we, we've identified particular types, modes, examples of historical satire, shall we say, whether it's spitting image, whether it's brassai, uh, that retain some of its power in the way more recent examples sometimes don't. Mm -hmm. uh, which is not, I don't think, the commonsensical hegemonic narrative of satire that satire needs to be re relevant and recent for it to be forceful so what apart from contemporaneity what are the criteria that satire requires to be effective i mean there's a so the the 
concept of contemporaneity, I th- do you mean, because there's two different ways of talking about it. There's the having been made and created in a time that is close to now. Yes. Or, which I think is more philosophically interesting, it is a, the, the, the form and technical structure and content of the satire speaks to the contemporary moment regardless of when it was made. Yes, so Brassai remains sharp and dangerous today. Because news... Hasn't really changed. And in fact has gotten more ridiculous. Which is then also part of the point, right? That in what sense is satire effective? Mm -hmm. Right? So if the point of the day-to-day in Brassai was to lambast the ridiculousness of news... Why is news even more Why ridiculous? Why is news even more ridiculous today? If you think of something like the thick of it and Malcolm Tucker, who is this monstrous, horrific figure at the center of British politics, um, it's almost like subsequent generations of, the term is SPAD, special advisors. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they've thought of Malcolm Tucker as a manual to follow. As opposed to something that is terrible and should be made fun exactly. of. Exactly. So the the forms of satire that are have been most effective for longest also by definition are the forms of satire that have had the least amount of effect in terms of changing attitudes, behaviors, ideas of the things that they were criticizing. Yes. Yeah, and I guess it goes to, it speaks to, I mean, we could use Foucault in discourse to talk about it, that satire, given that it it works via tone and irony and exaggeration, but it contain, it, it is contained within the same discourses that give rise to it, the same hegemonic discourses that give rise to it. So it doesn't, it's a form of counterconduct in some ways, but in fact is not a revolutionary form of counterconduct because it doesn't provide it doesn't provide a way to to move a discourse on in a sense yeah i mean you could you could use althusserian terms and talk about how it's at the level of superstructure and the mm. nothing 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 about satire affects the base yeah um there is a um quote by john lloyd who was one of the producers of Spitting Image when it was first on TV. Uh, and he was asked about what Spitting Image has achieved. Mm-hmm. You know, did you manage to change the government? And John Lloyd was like, well, no, that's your job. Yeah. You know, that, that and, and that's, I think, in terms of trying to um, understand the effectiveness of satire, part of the problem is that I'm not sure we know what effective satire is meant to do. Yeah. Because if it is meant to change political systems, if it is meant to reduce corruption, if it is meant to change human behavior and ideas, then I don't think there's ever been any effective satire. 
Sata has never brought down governments, I don't think. No. And I mean, even, you know, you think about older satire in some of the oldest, um, Candide, uh, Mark Twain. Swift. Yeah. Um, There's stuff in there in all of these texts. I mean, like Aristophanes, you know, there's a lot of the earliest satire that we have. There's stuff in there that, hasn't changed and and often stuff that that carries on in with exactly the same metaphor or trope so you know swift's modest proposal is famously we should eat the the young of the poor Mm -hmm. um that exact line or exact image is used in spitting image where uh norman tebbit and thatcher talk about how to put babies in a food processor uh (laughs) because that will reduce population, reduce poverty. Um, and again, the somehow the satire that has that has sort of, you know... Stayed with stayed us. Stayed with us, has passed the test of time, is paradoxically the ones that have, you know, by definition, been least successful. Um, Who's your favorite satirist? Tom Lever. <laughs> He's so good. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't listened to Tom Lever songs, please do. They're on YouTube and Spotify and, and in most other places. Uh, two particular songs that you might want to look out for. One's called Send the Marines, uh, which talks about how America's greatest foreign policy initiative is to send the army. Um, <laughs> and National Brotherhood Week, uh, which talks about how diversity measures i guess would be we'd, we'd use the phrase today uh and and the hypocrisy of them um both very very good oh. it's, it's, we're talking about satire from like the 60s this is this is 50s 60s um and it's it remains sharp it you know satirizing war satirizing politics and and getting to places that i'm not sure would be safe today in mm-hmm. other words, I'm not sure Tom Lever singing the kinds of songs about contemporary wars for was that were contemporary for him in Vietnam. Say, I'm not sure a singer singing songs like that about a contemporary war gets on BBC One or BBC Two today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, um, in the way that I don't know if a brass eye gets on TV today. Uh, certainly, I don't think a brass eye gets on BBC One, BBC Two today. It, it remains dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is some compliment to be, to, to be able to remain dangerous 50 years after, after you've been writing and performing. It's quite something. Yeah. What's your favorite satire? My favorite, I mean, I have, I have a lot. I think my, my favorite in the, in the age of social media and, um, uh online media is the specific saturday night live uh black jeopardy clip with tom hanks um which satirizes if black jeopardy was it's they've done it a few times tom hanks is the most successful one but every time it's very clever and because it places uh black perspectives into jeopardy 
which if you're not familiar with Jeopardy is a quiz show that's been on for many decades in the United States. Um, and it's populated by people like us, nerds. It's it, it's the a reverse quiz, right? It gives you the answer and you have to provide the question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the on Black Jeopardy on SNL, all of the categories are related to uh, aspects of African American and Black American life, and they get at so they both sat they satirize um, in the way that Goodness Gracious Me did aspects of the African American family, the Black community for a Black audience specifically. So some of Black Jeopardy is is not for white people, which I love because it's Saturday Night Live, which is such a kind of mainstream white show, um, that it a lot of it is actually geared towards black audiences and not white audiences. So white people don't always get the jokes, and that's part of the joke. Um, and Tom Hanks's appearance on Black Jeopardy is the most famous because he played a Trump voter, a prospective Trump voter before the 2016 election and they were bringing out um, some of the ways in which class and race uh, overlap, but also sit in tension with one another. And so there was this really um, clever satirizing of essentially different categories of Americans who have, been left behind by neoliberal capitalism um they shared they share conspiracy theories about smartphones um they what else do they do um how sort of the 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 poor working class white and the black both have somebody across the road who will repair their car oh yeah 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 and um, yeah you go to your guy i got a guy guy, yeah and for me, we'll, we the clips on YouTube. We'll share it in, in the the link in the comments. But the the surprise of recognition, mm-hmm. where both the black presenter and the black contestants, other contestants, recognize Tom Hanks as white Trump voter as someone with whom they share things. Yeah, they share you know they share subjectivities and vice versa and. And then the the crashing end. I'm spoiling the end for everyone, but the crashing end when the last category that comes up is Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And the presenter said it was good while it lasted. Yeah. And the uh, it, precisely the the fissures that divide the various victims of neoliberal capitalism, and exposing those fissures in a way that demonstrates how the they they the fissures are indispensable for neoliberal capitalism to function in the way it is yeah brilliant brilliant example of satire but it shares the same problem that all of the successful examples of satire that we have discussed which is it isn't and perhaps it's not meant to but it isn't doing anything to help challenge the fishes yeah right satire exposes the problem laughs at it encourages us to laugh at it but then what? But then what? I mean, I guess that there's an example in my mind and we don't have time to talk about it. And I guess we could do an entire episode on this if we chose to, is Dave Chappelle, who made a career early on making sketch comedy in this same style, especially around race. 
and then left comedy for a long time and has recently come back with a Netflix special that is extremely controversial and that a lot of a lot of commentators that I you know trust have have said and critiqued and have said that it it doesn't understand power and um there is a risk always with satire that you're and Dave Chappelle said that he left comedy early on because he he didn't he felt like like a lot of his audience especially his white audience was laughing at some of his black characters in a way that he was not intending for them to be laughed at so he decided I, I'm not going to make them anymore because I don't I don't think everyone is laughing up and I think all of these all of these examples all run the risk of that and do in various contexts reproduce rather than challenge. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a good point to end. We'll, we might well do an episode on race and satire in the future, so look out for that. Um, hope you found that... Interesting. Yeah, useful. Let us know. Let us know if you did. Let us know if you didn't. Um, Tell us your favorite satire. Yeah, what's your favorite satire? <laughs> Give us recommendations Yeah, if we've missed anything. Uh, be good, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Thank you.